season. And I'm going to ask you to reach in your program guide, pull your notes out, get ready to take some notes, and also put your response card to the side. We'll come back to that a little bit later in the message, okay? Did you realize this holiday season that a record 43 million plus people were in transit? 43 million plus people were moving around for Thanksgiving in the United States of America. That is amazing to me. You know, I can't help but to think that if they're like me when I travel, they forgot something, right? They forgot something along the way. And I'm going to get you guys to get interact with me a little bit. In a couple of minutes, I'm going to show you the top 10 list of what people forget when they travel. But I want you to take a couple guesses at it. And I want you just to yell out to me, what are some of the things that you think that people most commonly forget or leave behind when they're traveling? Go ahead. Toothbrush. Toothbrush, underwear, socks. I think I rode next to a guy one time who forgot deodorant. <laughs> On purpose? Kids, shampoo. What, what, did, what was that last one? Tickets. Was that... Phone charger, tickets and phone charger. Tickets. We're just gonna put charger. Uh, medication. Passport. What else? What someone say? Juice. Shoes. Okay. What else? Wallet. Camera. You guys have forgotten a lot of things, haven't you? A type of clothing? Uh, clothes. We'll just put clothes. Diapers, adult or children? I don't want to get into that. <laughs> All right, we got a, we've got a good, a good list up here. I might have missed a couple. I'm sorry if I did that. Let's go ahead and look at the top 10 list of what people really forget. What do you think this is? Tags for their bags. You ever do that? Forget to tag your bag, and then you walk out, and everybody else has a black pull-along Pullman bag, too. Forty other people on that flight have that, okay? Number nine, toothbrush. We got that one. Okay. Number eight, important contact numbers. Now, I would think that would be like kind of the same as your cell phone because you carry most of them in your phone nowadays, okay? Number seven, medication. Forget that. Sometimes you need that just for the trip. Um, what's this? Cash? Yeah, cash or your wallet. We got that one. What's this? Shoes, the right kind of shoes. We had that somewhere, right? Clothes up there. Shoes, yeah, we got up there. We're good on that one. Underwear. <laughs> Glad they chose the boxer for that slide. Three extra socks, yep. Had that one. Passport, we have that one too, I think, right? Yep, yep. got passport. And the number one thing that people forget, their tickets. They forget their tickets, forget to bring them along. So, uh, yeah, we forget things when we're going on a trip. We try to remember, we make lists. If you're like me, 
getting ready for Thanksgiving. You made a list of things you need, but you had to go back to the store about four or five times anyhow, and you just kept adding to the list because we just forget things. We're, we're on a journey. We're moving. There's movement. There's stuff going on, and we're excited about that. It's the same thing happens on our spiritual journey too, but what happens on our spiritual journey with God when maybe a pretty big component or uh, area of our Christianity is missing, if we're missing or we forget about it, okay? In our spiritual journey, what happens when we leave something crucial behind and only have part of it? In Richard Stern's books, and Richard Stern's was once the president of Lennox Corporation, which makes all the beautiful Lennox wear, and uh, he's a, he was a, a multimillionaire president of that corporation, and he now serves as president for World Vision. He chose to step down from that position and take and become the president of World Vision. World Vision is a relief organization that reaches out to the poorest of poor marginalized people all over the world and uh, through practical means of compassion. He wrote a book called The Whole in Our Gospel because after being someone of great wealth in the United States and then visiting third world countries and people and sitting with people and being with people, he realized that Although he was a Christian, there was a part of the gospel that he had been missing out on for years. And so he wrote this about the crucial component of the gospel that sometimes we miss. He says this in his book, The Hole in Our Gospel. More and more, our view of the gospel has been narrowed to a simple transaction, marked by the checking of a box on a card at some prayer breakfast or registering a decision for Christ somewhere or even coming forward at an altar call. I have to admit that my own view of evangelism based on the Great Commission amounted to just that for many years. It was about as saving as many people from hell as possible for the next life. It minimized, however, any concern for those people in this life. It wasn't as important that they were poor or hungry or persecuted or perhaps rich and greedy and arrogant. We just wanted them to pray the sinner's prayer and move them on so we could get on to our next potential, potential convert. In our evangelistic efforts to make the good news accessible and simple, simple to understand, we seem to have boiled it down to a kind of fire insurance that somebody can buy. Once the policy is in effect, the sinner can go back to whatever lifestyle they were leading, wealthy, successful, poverty, suffering, whatever. As long as the policy is in the drawer, the other things don't matter that much. We've got our ticket to the next life. There is a real problem with this limited view of the kingdom of God. It is not the whole gospel. Instead, it is a gospel with a gaping hole in it. I'm afraid that when I read those words, and I read them again this morning, that they kind of sting. They're a bit convicting. That there's more to the gospel than what meets the eye. You know, and for the gospel to be demonstrated, to be lived out in our life, to be fully uh, lived out by ourselves and then translated to other people, I think there's three different parts of the gospel that need to happen. The gospel definitely needs to be clearly articulated articulated. It needs to be clear to people that there, when it comes to holiness, that there's a gap between me and God, and that God is the holy one, and I'm the one who's running at a deficit. As a matter of fact, when I stack up myself against God, there, I, I figure out pretty quickly that I'm morally bankrupt, and I am in need of somebody else to pay the way, to pay my debt of my bankruptcy. And that's what the cross is all about. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That needs to be clearly articulated that there's a gap between us and God that only can be filled 
with the Son coming down and paying the debt for our sin. So the gospel needs to be articulated. But secondly, the gospel needs to be illustrated. In our lives, if you read through the Bible, you're going to see in the Bible, there are just, it's a compendium of story after story after story of God's grace and His truth and His love coming in to redeem people, to win them back when they were far from Him, for them turning and repenting and coming to Him. And so the stories are in there, but even better than that is us learning how to share our story of how God has changed our life and taken us from the night to day uh, in, in our life. It's taken us from the darkness into light. And so the gospel needs to be articulated, but it also needs to be illustrated through our story so that people can know that it's believable and, and they can touch you and, and hear about you and know about your life. And so we need to be willing to share that with people. But also there's a third part of the gospel that sometimes is missing. And sometimes there's a hole in our life and a hole in our gospel. Not only does the gospel need to be articulated and illustrated, but there's a third part of the gospel that we're going to learn about this morning that needs to be lived out in for, and so that the gospel can be complete, not only in our lives, but in the lives of new people and new people that are coming into the kingdom and believing in Him. You know, we're not the only people who have struggled with this hole in our gospel syndrome. In the New Testament, in the latter part of it, there's a small letter that's nestled between the book of Titus and the book of Hebrews. It's only one page long, and so if the last chapter of Titus sticks to the first chapter of Hebrews, you'll never read it. And some of you have bought those sticky Bibles where you're trying to get the pages apart, and so you would miss Philemon. Philemon is just a short letter that was written by Paul uh, when he was under house arrest in Rome. And he wrote this one-page letter to a man named Philemon on behalf of his runaway servant, Onesimus. And I think if we mine for a little bit of gold this morning, we're going to see as we read through this text and as we study it together, we're going to see what might be missing. What was missing for Philemon in his gospel and what might be missing for us? I want you just to listen as I read this one-page letter that was written by Paul so long ago. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear brother and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you will be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed, refreshed the heart of many saints. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man, and now as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful to both you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I do not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he has separated from you for a while is that, he might, that you might have him back for good. 
No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you welcome me. If he has done you any wrong and owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do not wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Then it's one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you and come to you as an answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends, your, sends greetings. Also to do Mark, Articaeus, Demius, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in his spirit. This letter was written by Paul to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. Onesimus had been a slave, had been an indentured servant to Philemon. And I want us to see what Philemon learned about the good news of Jesus Christ because Onesimus had been his slave but had not been a follower of Christ. Although he knew, we knew that he operated within the home of Philemon, we know that Philemon was a wealthy man. To have an indentured servant or slave, you needed to be because you would have the means to be able to pay their debt, and then they would be indebted to you and become your slave or your house servant. And so we know that he was wealthy, and he was, and had some prestige in the culture. We know that he was part of the church at Colossae, and we know that Paul was sending letters back and forth there. We know that Paul had a personal relationship with Philemon from what he writes in the letter here, and that Philemon had been a great blessing to him. And that we know that Philemon also from the letter had been someone who had been sharing his faith. He had been articulating his faith. He had been illustrating his faith. But it wasn't until Onesimus was away from Philemon and with Paul, when Paul was under house arrest in Rome, that he came to Christ. And so perhaps that infers that there was some part of the gospel that was missing for Onesimus. He heard the gospel articulated. He saw it illustrated through the stories of changed life, but perhaps there was part of it that he could only receive when he was with Paul and in chains and could see the compassion that Paul had for him. And so he comes to faith in Christ. The first point I want to talk to you about this morning is this. Others experience the whole gospel when we reflect God's humility. When we reflect God's humility, others can receive the whole gospel. Paul writes to Philemon, and he sends the letter. He sends Onesimus, and he sends another, uh, another person along with him. And Onesimus decides that he's going to go back and deliver this letter to the master who he had run away from. And so he, he shows up at his doorstep, letter in hand, and uh, I, I can't imagine being uh, from the, the perspective of Philemon Philemon is the one who's receiving this letter, and Paul immediately tells him, look, I know you've been wronged. I know you haven't seen your servant for a long time. I know when he shows up on your doorstep that the, the law of the land says you could even take his own life if you wanted to at this point. But I'm asking you to be humble. I'm asking you to first, what? Listen. He's asking him, before you go off, read the letter. Before you have any conversation with him, read the letter. I don't know about you, but when 
I've been wronged, when I help somebody else out, if I had been Philemon, I would not want to have listened. When I'm wronged, I don't want to listen. I want to talk. I want to set things straight. And if you're the person who's wronged me, I want to let you know what you have done to mess things up and what you need to do to make things right. But there's a part of the gospel and a part of the good news that says that even though you've wronged me, I'm going to listen first. I'm going to be humble. I'm going to open up my ears and I'm going to open up my heart. I will have my opportunity to speak. But Paul's saying, if you would first listen, if you would first listen, you'll get some more of the background of what's been going on. He said, yes, your servant who owed you a great debt, yes, he ran off. Secondly, he probably took money or material goods for the trip when he did that, okay? He stole from you. But thirdly, while he was away, he had a conversion of the soul that changed him so much that he was willing to return on foot with this letter in hand and put himself under your rule again, even though you could take his life. And so he's saying, would you please humble yourself, humble yourself, and take him back. He's been of great help to me, and I think he'll be of great help to you. One of the dead giveaways that we are walking with God is how we treat others, isn't it? It's how we treat others. Paul says, I want you to treat him. I want you to stop for a moment and just let your, your steam and your ire and your anger come back down. And I want you to treat him with humility. Philemon had probably been articulating his faith. We know that if articulating and illustrating his faith to Onesimus, we know that if Onesimus was a house servant and their churches met in homes, that Onesimus was probably the one who was helping things get ready for church to happen in the home. He probably was the one cleaning up. He was probably the one making food and helping make food because in the early church when they would get together, they would have a love feast and have communion together. They would have a time of great, you know, uh, celebrating God's grace and goodness to them. So for a long time, he had been kind of setting this up and watching from a distance. But he had not come to his own faith in Christ until he was removed from Philemon. But then he comes to faith and then he's willing to return. There's a part of this There's a part of this where because he's willing to return, because he's willing to turn from his way, then Philemon can be humble with him, can listen. What happened in the intervening time between him leaving and coming back? Oh, he came to Christ? Oh, he was a help to the apostle Paul who oversees the churches? Oh, he didn't just run away and stay away? Somehow he was involved with one of my best friends helping the good news go out to everywhere. Philemon was kind of in some ways a bankroller of the kingdom of God. He was doing what I have a heart to do while he was away. He wasn't just spending it all and living it up and trying to establish a new life. Something happened to him like happened to me when I was converted. Wow. Having the humility to listen to now his conversion, his story of his changed life began to change Philemon and how he was walking with God. 
Second point I want to talk about this morning, and I noticed from Philemon here, is others experience the whole gospel when we grant God's mercy. When we grant God's mercy. And I'm thinking now of the perspective of Onesimus, the one who's delivering the letter, the one that shows back up. Paul says, no longer treat him as a slave, but better than a slave, treat him as a brother in the Lord. He's very dear to me, but even dear to you, both as a man and as a brother in the, in the Lord. I can't imagine what it might have felt like to become a believer, to work with Paul who was under house arrest. So Paul's under house arrest. He's in chains. But Onesimus can visit him, run errands for him, write down things for him. He, he can actually kind of help the whole operation of the early church keep going. It's amazing that God takes this runaway servant and utilizes him to help the good news of Jesus Christ keep going back and forth. And the church is being planted and it's growing. And it's growing by this man who's willing to, although he was running away from life, be caught by God, converted, and then join God in his mission in this world. He's not only willing to work for Paul, He's not only willing to accept Christ and that good news for him, but he's willing to return and put his life on the line. He's willing to turn around and have a repentant lifestyle. And we know that because of what he was doing for Paul, and we know that because he could have just taken off. When Paul said, hey, I'll write you this letter, but you need to take it back, and you need to make things right. You need to be the one who steps up to the plate because Onesimus, you have done wrong. And you need to turn and return. You're the one who needs to take the initiative. You're the one who needs to be repentant because you have done the wrong. Onesimus didn't say, well, hopefully Philemon, he'll, he knows where I'm at now. Why don't you send him a letter letting him know where I'm at and he can seek me out? No. He says, you take the letter, you go. I can't imagine what it was like to show up trembling on the doorstep please show me mercy. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner who's been saved by grace. So Paul sends this letter of appeal along with him. It's almost like he's his, uh, in some ways, if you read back through uh, what, was, what would have gone on in the culture that day, he's almost like a lawyer for him. He almost sets up the letter in that way. This is a letter of appeal for, uh, uh, for my client here to get back into your good graces. Would you please show him mercy? Would you please consider canceling the debt that he owes you? So he shows up on the doorstep and he's shaking. You know, there's a lot of times in our life that we don't really understand what mercy is until we're shaken a bit, right? We don't understand what it means to receive mercy and we don't understand what it means to extend mercy till life gets shaken up a bit. We're kind of just going along with life, and usually this is how it works. I want mercy for me, and I want justice for you. <laughs> In other words, I want you to be accountable, but I don't want to be accountable, you know? What's really true is that we need to both be accountable, but in that accountability, then we need to turn back to God and turn back to people that we've wronged and be repentant in order so that we can experience true mercy. But it's usually these times in life where life shakes us up. One of the, one of the uh, ways that life can shake us up is when we leave our culture, 
We leave our home. We leave our job. We leave our comfort zone for a short amount of time. We do this for short-term trips. And uh, one of the things that our church does is we really do attempt to go to places in the world where people are marginalized, where people don't have the good news, where people do need us not to just articulate and illustrate, but they need us to show compassion to them. And it usually rocks our world when we do that. Not just theirs, but ours. Because this whole mercy revolution starts to happen when that takes place. I want you to watch just for a moment part of Cheryl Fell's story of her trip to Ecuador this past year when she learned something about mercy. We to uh, grow in Ecuador as we watch God provide in ways that were also incredible. It was a, a welcome sight when we, our canoe pulled up to the shores of Payas. There on the cliff are all these tribes, people, adults and children alike of the Shuar Indians and they just ran to greet us. At that time we saw a girl on the, the cliff on the shores that had a, um, a dirty pillowcase dress on and her arm was all, all bandaged, the whole upper arm was bandaged. We just made a note that we all wanted to see what was going on there. And so as we were getting ready and settling into our quarters, um, this eight-year-old little girl, Nayeli, um, came in to be examined. After unwrapping um, the bandages that were just seeped and had stuck to her arm, they were just glued as part of her arm, uh, Laura saw that there was a, a burn wound that was festering underneath it. And all we had was a little first aid kit, and she basically took a clean toothbrush and, and scraped away the dead skin off of Nayeli's arm. Um, she then uh, used antiseptic cleaner and cleaned the wound and then freshly bandaged it back up. And it just really struck me during this time that um, Nayeli was so brave. We all fell in love with Nayeli. Uh, she always had a beautiful, radiant smile. My love for Nayeli uh, grew every day. I mean, we were just daily companions, and um, the, the language barrier just wasn't an issue because our love and the, the smiles and the embraces, um, it just translated whether we understood each other's language or not. I pleaded with God to, um, to have her wound scab over before we left, just to give me that peace of mind that um, she would be okay. Uh, but the healing was slow, it didn't scab over, and I realized that um, my purpose for being there wasn't to heal Nayeli's physical wounds. It was just to love her, and uh, I love her. And I know that uh, my presence wasn't needed, and isn't needed, for the healer to work. 
So I continued to pray for Nayali and um, know that, that the God who cared about my sons and my funds to be able to go and the God who create, created Nayeli cares more about her than I could ever care about her. When we embark on a short-term trip from daybreak, we uh, equip the teams to go out. The teams learn how to clearly articulate the gospel they know how to illustrate the gospel. Every team, every person on the team has a little picture book that they put together that it helps explain their life, who they are, and also helps them in a cross-cultural situation to be able to explain how Jesus Christ has taken them from night to day in their life. But there's a third part of the gospel that happens that the Holy Spirit brings when we're there, only when we're humble, and that's the compassionate part that you just saw illustrated there. But it's only when we get out of our comfort zone, usually, that we can become compassionate people. I usually become a pretty complacent person, staying in my patterns and my zone. But when I get out of my zone, God's mercy can kind of wreck me. All of a sudden, God takes all my prejudices. He takes all of the things that I want and things that are important to me. He takes all my self-centeredness and he kind of just smashes it on the rock of mercy in front of me. And I realize that there's another part of the gospel and that's reflecting the nature of who God is to people by being broken with them. That is often the missing part. We need the part where we articulate the good news and illustrate the good news, but we also need the part of the good news where we authenticate who God is by treating people with respect and honor and love and letting God kind of wreck us and destroy us in the moment, tear down some of our prejudices. The third point I want to talk to you about quickly this morning is others experience the whole gospel when we seek God's justice. When we seek God's justice. We've talked about what it might have been like to receive that letter and being in the feet of Philemon, we've talked about Onesimus and bringing the letter might, might have felt like, but what did it feel like to be Paul who was seeking the justice of God on the behalf of Onesimus? What, how would it felt to write a letter from prison saying these words, if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. Charge it to me, the guy who doesn't have a job, who's unemployed and in prison. I, Paul, am writing this to you by my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. He's appealing to him. He's not saying, look, just pretend this never happened. If we were going to pretend it never happened, then Onesimus wouldn't have to show back up. Onesimus wouldn't have to put his life on the line, but he did. No, we're not pretending this didn't happen. We're not pretending that Onesimus, you know, may have some of this fate that's come upon him in life and some of this, these bad things happened where some of it was of his own doing. We're not negating that. We're not negating justice. Paul's saying, as a matter of fact, let's make justice forefront, just as it is at the cross. 
that there's a gap between us and God. Let's keep that right up front. Paul's not condoning an onismus behavior. Instead, Paul is saying that he'll take the heat for it. He'll pay the way for it. He'll pay. He'll atone for the debt that Onesimus owes Philemon. You know, when an opportunity comes up to help those in need, sometimes in my mind I think, well, you know, I'll dismiss that. Well, I would help people in need, but they probably got them, their own selves there anyhow. You know, if they just work a little bit harder or get a better job, or if they would, you know, sometimes when we see people in need, we kind of say that. I say that on the inside. I may not say it on the outside, but it kind of gets me off the hook. But then I think about what Christ did for me and canceled, his, canceled a debt for me, and I think, have I ever canceled someone else's debt? I mean, it's pretty audacious to think about canceling somebody else's debt. I'm going to pay it off for you. And then God reminds me, how about canceling emotional debts with other people? Apologies that you think you're needed before you'll talk again. How about canceling those debts? It is really, you get on the horns of a dilemma when you start dealing with justice, don't you? And forgiveness. And when you're to be part of the living gospel that says, yes, we'll deal with justice, but I'll be a forgiver because in my hour of greatest need, the father looked at the son and the son said, I'll transfer Joel's debt onto my shoulders and I'll die on the cross for it. And I'll take the hit for him. And then I'll rise again. So he can not only be forgiven of his sin, but empowered to live a new life. Empowered to be a person who turns and lives in a new way. Empowered to be a person who articulates, illustrates, and emulates and authenticates the good news of Jesus Christ by how he lives his life. See, the gospel isn't about just checking a card or coming to an altar. That's part of it, and that's an important part, making that commitment, making that transaction. But the gospel is supposed to invade us and change us and make us into people who aren't just articulate, who aren't just illustrating, but are really living out. We're the authentic article before God. Richard Stearns wrote this later on in his book. He said, the, the idea behind the hole in our gospel is quite simple. It's basically the belief that being a Christian or a follower of Jesus Christ requires much more than just a personal and transforming relationship with God. It also entails a public and transforming relationship with the world. It's not just a personal or transforming relationship with God. It's also a public and transforming relationship with the world. During this series the wholeness of our gospel, we're going to be asking ourselves again and again, is there something that we're missing? Something that God expects from us? My hope is that we'll find this out. That it isn't the gospel that's missing something. It's us. We're missing something. The gospel is complete. It's whole. It's holy. It cares for the whole man because God made the whole man. But we'll realize that maybe there's something missing in us. Yes, it needs to be articulated. Yes, it needs to be illustrated. But thirdly, it needs to be the authentic article. It needs to represent who God is in his very nature when we're living out the gospel of Jesus Christ demonstrated with acts of compassion and a lifestyle of mercy. Micah 6.8 puts it this way. 
He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I had a friend in college, and he loved to wear Levi's jeans. As a matter of fact, he would wear no other brand of jeans but Levi's. The problem was we were in college, so we couldn't afford first-hand Levi's right from the store. So we would find places that sold second- and third-hand Levi's jeans. But he knew a way to authenticate whether they were a knockoff or they were real Levi's. On the back of a Levi jeans, I don't know if it's still true, but on the pocket was a little tab, and the tab was either red or orange or silver, and it had Levi's embossed on it, and it was sewn on just... It also indicated what cut they were from what color it was. He knew all about this. He mesmerized me when it came to Levi jeans. And we would go to places where you were looking through, like, you know, these big, big uh, tables full of jeans and stuff, and he'd be pulling out all the Levi's. Then he'd get all the Levi's in a pile over here. Then he'd look through the size of the Levi's. And the ones that didn't fit them, he'd put those back. He'd keep all the ones he fit, and then he would go through them. And as he was going through them, he would yell out this. And it, it was the mantra of Levi's at one time, the authentic article. That was, that was their mantra, the authentic article. And that's what he wanted, the authentic article. So when you'd find it, he'd go, the authentic article. <laughs> he'd hold it up in the air. He was very embarrassing to shop with, but he was a friend. <laughs> so he'd hold him up, walk up. But what did he want? He wanted the real deal, and that's what people want who are looking for God. They're hoping that we're not just talking about God. We're hoping that we're not just sharing our story. We're hoping that there's a story for them. They want us to by our compassion and mercy, by letting God invade us and wreck us, that the best of God will be wrung out through us so that there won't be a hole in the gospel. There won't be a hole in us, but the good news will be complete and it will be good news for the whole world. I want us to put our chin in our chest and close our eyes for a moment. As I say a word of prayer to close this service, Lord, would you come and please make the good news complete and whole again? Lord, would you patch the hole in our lives by weaving together humility and mercy and justice into a fabric that covers the whole and reflects who you truly are? Help us to clearly articulate the gospel so that people can come into a life-changing relationship with you and celebrate your grace. Help us to personally illustrate the good news by sharing the night and day difference that you've made in our own lives. And Lord, help us to consistently authenticate the gospel by reflecting your compassionate character to a world that desperately needs a face-to-face and eye-to-eye encounter with you, the living God. Empower us, God, not only to love in word, but also to love in deed also. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your love to us. Make the gospel well up within us. And over these next weeks, Lord God, we pray that the gospel would come alive and the whole would be filled up and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name. Amen.